0: This is the land of the free. Stories of life and liberty
1: in a time of war.
0: Hi, I'm Joe Lindsley, an American in Ukraine. This is our Land of the Free podcast with Ukrainska Pravda, Ukrainian Truth, and our team from Ukrainian Freedom News. And I have been in Ukraine every moment since the pandemic, and now every moment of Russia's full-scale invasion. And as I've traveled this country uh, in the wartime, I've met the most extraordinary uh, voices, both Ukrainians and foreigners alike, working for freedom. And I realized that if more people in the West and in America could hear the voices uh, in English of those who are standing up against this evil force of tyranny coming from Moscow, it would really, I think, awaken a sense of belief in the human spirit and democracy throughout the world. And so this is our podcast, Land of the Free, News.com. You can support our work to help uh, guys at the front lines and Ukrainska Pravda, uh, legendary Ukrainian independent media. For our guest today, we have my great friend Taras Bick. Taras is a civil society guy. He was part of the Maidan revolution in 2014. He's got great stories from those days uh, when Ukraine changed its destiny away from uh, Russian totalitarianism toward freedom. And Taras also, he's a a political strategist. He's worked at the micro level uh, with fighting corruption uh, throughout Ukraine in different cities. He's with uh, the firm called Wooden Horse Strategies, and he has an NGO agency for recovery and development. And I think... Taras also is a great thinker uh, about uh, what it means, uh, what Ukrainian democracy means. But he's also got a very interesting project, uh, which to some people sounds impossible, working on the collapse of the Russian Federation. And so here is my conversation in our podcast, Land of the Free, with great Ukrainian Taras Bik. <laughs> Taras, uh, you're from Lviv in the west. Uh, because it's a holiday here, even though this will be aired uh, much later, we have uh, both have veshivanka, the traditional traditional Ukrainian embroidered garments for the holiday. Uh, I just arrived from Kharkiv this morning by train. Uh, Taras, what uh, what are you doing here in Kyiv now?
1: These days in Kyiv are doing the same stuff as usually, trying to return to normal life, like working conditions, communicating with my friends on the front lines, asking them what they need, and uh, trying to help them with uh, with everything they need, and working on the recovery and development of Ukraine, which is like another big direction of our activities here.
0: Well, and as so as I see you today, I mean, I think I, I, it's hard to remember where I saw you last, and this is the nature of life in the war uh, in Ukraine. but you know, it's a huge country, the largest country in Europe, and you have everyone traveling to and fro uh throughout the country. Sometimes at a gas station I'll run into a gas station in Donbass, I'll run into people, you know, I haven't seen since Lviv or somewhere else. And it's a sign of how everyone is moving actively, uh, working for victory. So we I remember we had it was the last fall we had that wartime road trip to Odessa. And Mikolayev, and uh, we're on that trip. I learned a lot about your work with. Uh, for for years, you've been working against corruption uh, in in Ukraine, and uh, especially at the local level. And, and, and sort of strengthening local governance, uh, because for so long, of course, Ukraine was stuck in the Soviet model where everything was centralized, and that's been a big project since the Maidan Revolution, since twenty fourteen, uh, to to make uh, to give a a renaissance of, of local locally controlled politics, uh, which also removes the corruption by taking the money away from one central location. And as we you know, as we start this this podcast, uh, you know, a goal as as an American, I realize so many of the Americans who love freedom, uh, especially the people that have left California to go to Austin, Texas, uh, if they knew the real story of Ukraine, of how fiercely free it is, of how not only how people are working for victory now, but how for years uh, people have been working to to make government work for the people, uh, to make government of the people. Uh, I think, I I know Americans would be inspired by this, and that's why we're we're, we're doing this program, and I've brought so many Americans here to Ukraine, and when they talk with you and, and so many others, they're inspired and so if we can share these brilliant ukrainian voices uh with america in particular uh to show that this is the capital of freedom uh here on this independence day uh and so there's so much we, we can talk about and as we've you know we've been to you know whether talking in bars or on road trips uh, always exchanging many stories what uh here it is August 24th today, Ukrainian Independence Day. You were in the Maidan, not far away from here, in Kyiv in 2014. What, what is the story from your perspective of the Maidan revolution? Because uh, I think it gets that gets missed a lot in, in, the, in the stories. You know, We hear about Ukraine, of course, every single day. What happened in 2014, 2013, 2014 with the Maidan revolution?
1: Uh, so, first of all, thank you for everything you're doing, for making voice of Ukrainians heard, especially in the United States of America. Uh, going back to 2013, I would say that uh, this was basically beginning of the long-term revolution, which turned later into war, because to some extent it was a kind of anti-Russian event where Ukraine was on the crossroads, so we were deciding either we are going westwards to become a real European uh, NATO-can uh, country, or we are going to become another once for once again, uh, basically not to become, but uh, remain under slavery of Russia. And this is basically this is the clash of civilizations. Um, We uh, then chose our path uh, towards Europe, going westwards. Uh, It costed us lives. it was something really hard to imagine. Well, I mean, before the revolution of dignity, just imagine you are walking in the center of capital city of European country in the 21st century. And several months later, you see uh, people shot dead there by by their own police, uh, which was obviously controlled, not so much by by Ukraine, but mainly by Russia. But still, this is what what was happening. This was like first shock. And uh, then the revolution basically immediately turned into war because when Russia, uh, I'm sure about it, what I'm telling, this is Russia. It's not only Yanukovych regime it was fully controlled by Moscow when Russia failed to get rid of Maidan to get rid of, of protesters on, on Maidan then it started immediately war on the Crimea, on the Donbas, and that's how it involved in full-scale invas- invasion in uh, 2019. So this is like a very long path and very long path to our freedom. But uh, for all those, this period starting from 2013 uh, the Ukrainian people have demonstrated that freedom is much more important for us than anything else. And I think the entire world has seen us today
0: you know i think of that the great uh, phrase in american uh political history of give me liberty or give me death and that is that's you know it's true here uh and we see this in the most difficult sense we, i want to talk about your personal experience in the maidan uh but before that and and by the way i mean Taras, you you work now you have an ngo in the wartime uh, agency for recovery and development uh you've also worked as a political consultant uh wooden horse strategies Uh, with many Americans and others, and you've helped get uh, sort of this Maidan generation elected, especially at the local level. Uh, We can talk about that, but I want, you know, when so many Americans... Unfortunately, hear about Maidan, uh, you know, in in the American imagination of freedom-loving Americans, uh, the Maidan Revolution was con- was created by uh, one woman. She was the mastermind in the in the U.S. State Department, Victoria <laughs> Newland. Uh, even uh, as I was on the train today, I was watching yet another clip from my old colleague Tucker Carlson, claiming that you know uh, Ms. Newland uh, is you know was somehow uh, orchestrated this revolution. What is your response to that that, 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 that the Maidan, the revolution of dignity, uh, as it's called, was created
1: by the State Department, specifically by Victoria Nuland? Um, I would just say that Victoria Nuland was uh, a guest who was warmly welcomed on Maidan, just like many other guests who were who were coming to support us. Uh, but, uh, well, obviously, I mean, uh, I was there from the very beginning, uh, just like millions of other Ukrainians. Actually, on the day of when Maidan started, I was in Ivano-Frankivsk, in Western Ukrainian city. How, how old were you at this point? Uh, so it was 2013. I was uh, 20, uh, 30 years old. And uh, so, uh, I mean, when we went to the uh, to Maidan in Ivano-Frankivsk, the first night, I remember those are just my friends. Well, obviously, you can hardly imagine, you know, I don't know, like US Department, State, State, State Department representative present in Ivano-Frankivsk. Because this is in Western Ukraine, many, many hours away from Kyiv. Absolutely. And there were uh, on the first night of the revolution, even in Ivano-Frankivsk, which is like 600 kilometers from Kyiv, there were attempts to set tents in the center of the city to start like local Maidan. And this is something that was happening all over Ukraine. So this is something you cannot like organize from above. This was real, genuine, grassroots movement, bottom-up approach. And that's how people went to Maidan in Kyiv, in Ivano-Frankivsk, in all over Ukraine, in in southern Ukraine, in, in eastern Ukraine, everywhere and of course Kyiv ha- has become like center of the protest because people from all, all over all over Ukraine were coming to uh, to Maidan and i mean uh, this is something you cannot even if you wanted you cannot this organize logistically this is uh, a million, million people coming to Maidan it's not possible to organize so, this is basically my response. But uh, yes, Victoria Nalun Nuland, just like many other guests, uh, Western friends, other friends, were coming to Maidan to see us, and they were warmly welcome.
0: What, you know, we should mention the word Maidan is in Ukrainian, but it comes from a Persian word, meaning. Turkish, Turkish word, yeah? mm-hmm. meaning. Public square, meaning sort of the central square of the mm-hmm. city, uh, and that has come to mean in Ukraine because you not you know you had previous Maidans, you had one in two thousand four, for example, the Orange Revolution, but it's come to mean when the people, it's like to me, it's a fourth branch of government. It's 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 really the final check and balance. It's mm-hmm. when the people take to the square. And demand uh, that their rights be heard, or, you know, that their voices be be heard, and demand their freedoms. And and it really is, you know, we talk about the public square in America, but it exists in a real way. It's an actual place. I mean, in cities like Ivano-Frankivsk and Lviv and Kiev, there's actually a Maidan, uh where people can gather. Uh, so it's in the geographic structure of the cities. What? So in 2013, it was uh, October, 2013. What in well, yeah, late, late November? Late November. What 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 was the thing that got you to go to you know you as one Ukrainian who was well connected mm-hmm. politically you know pay, paying attention politically and working in that field. Uh, but what got you to say, I need to go to the Maidan tonight uh, in, in the city of Ivano-Frankivsk?
1: The funny thing that everything started from uh, the decision by the cabinet of ministers of Ukraine to cancel like one of the bylaws, basically. It was not a really important law. It was not some strategic document, but this bylaw was deciding if we are continuing negotiations on uh, joining the association agreement with the European Union or not. But everyone had realized if we are canceling this uh, small like which seemed to be quite an important document and everyone realized that uh, we are switching uh, eastwards and basically this this was part of the bigger picture when yanukovych was basically communicating with moscow much more than brussels and it was becoming clear that the government is refusing from the european integration path and is becoming closer and closer to to the west and that's why, that's when we went to first in Manuano-Frankivsk, then on my way to Kiev, I stopped in Lviv, I, w- I saw Maidan there, then we came to Kiev, and when the, the, this is when, when, like, really big uh, Maidan has, had begun. But still, first, it was not in, uh, that big. I remember there were actually two Maidans in Lviv, in, in Kiev, so one was organized by civil society organizations, and another one by political parties. Because civil society would not accept any flags of political parties present on their Maidan, political parties still wanted to demonstrate their, uh, like, with the parties, and they they were d- divided. One was on the Maidan Square, and the other was one, one was on the European Square.
0: And where was Victoria Newlands Maidan? Uh, <laughs>
1: Victoria Nuland came came much later after after we basically united Maidans and uh, the, this unity of Maidans came after uh, the night on uh, I think December first, uh, because well the Maidan was absolutely peaceful. Uh, yes, I mean this, some roads were blocked, but there were no uh, aggressive attacks. No, 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 nothing. I would say illegal, uh, but on the night on uh, December first, as far, as far as I remember, there was this attack on students. It was absolutely brutal, absolutely, well, authoritarian-style attack. This, though, so this was what happening, And this basically pushed for another wave of uh, people coming together. Uh, in, in the next several days, we had so-called March of Millions, when just people from all over Ukraine, well, there are different calculations, but uh, many of them say that uh, up to one million were present uh, on, Maidan, on Maidan, not only on Maidan, but all around Kyiv. And this was um, not only about refusal from european integration this was a protest against uh, measures taken by the government when innocent students were beaten in the center of the capital city so this is where many of uh, many people came many people stayed and this is when we started you know just building barricades on that night um and well more and more people were coming we were setting tents and realized so this is much more about uh, foreign policy it's about uh, not allowing ukraine uh, to turn into an authoritarian state because this is something that would not be acceptable by us and was
0: this authoritarianism was it creeping in or was it still sort of the same you would had from the soviet times or did it seem like it was getting worse for, for, you know had there been a period of recovery since the 2004 orange revolution
1: mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. In 2004, we had really high expectations because, well, it was like, f- actually, it was second Maidan. The first was one on, was in 1991. When st- once again, students started it as well as ma- on, on Maidan. Um, and then in 2004, we had uh, another Maidan. And uh, after a week of this Maidan, when Yushchenko was uh, elected as president, well, everyone hoped that uh, democracy is here, it's done. But the problem is that everyone took it for granted. And, you know, instead of uh, starting doing something themselves, uh, people had too much too, too, too much expectations from President Yushchenko, from government, and they said, like, okay, now everything is ready, we have democracy, everything will be done. Uh, but obviously it doesn't work this way because, well, you have to work hard. Turns out you have to work hard to keep democracy, to keep uh, safety, to keep security. And uh, that's when that's how Kavianukovych was uh, elected as president. And several years later, even though, I mean, I, I was shocked when Yanukovych was was elected because for me it was obvious uh, way to disaster, uh, which ultimately happened several years later. So we had this, you know, um, attempt of uh, having freedom uh, for for several years, but uh, somehow we lost it, and we lost it actually in free and fair elections. That's, the, those were free and fair elections which brought Yan- Yanukovych to, to power. So, and um, after the second, uh, third, actually, Maidan, everyone realized, okay, that freedom is not given for granted. We have to do something to keep it. We have to work hard to fight corruption, to work hard to uh, strengthen uh, good governance, and so on and so on. So this, I would say, two major differences between the Orange Revolution and the Revolution of Dignity. After the Revolution of Dignity, the role of civil society, the role of local self-governance was much stronger. People realized that they had to do something themselves to keep the freedom, to keep the democracy.
0: I want to talk more a bit about what it was some of the moments. In within during those days, camped out in the streets uh, in Kiev during the revolution. But first, so I mean, you could say, you know, that the and here we have, you know, you, I think I'm still on Kharkiv alarm system, so it's not for Kiev, because uh, I've been there the past week. But uh, you know, it was more or less February 24th, 2014, mm-hmm. that the Yanukovych interesting date, by the way, that the Yanukovych regime uh, fled uh, to Moscow, and when when everyone left. You know you, you went home after that from the streets of kiev after many people had been there for months and it was a little society that was created there what did did people just go home and rest or did they did did they go home with a new sense of okay we need to do x y and z to make this revolution work uh what, what were there any were there any mechanisms that helped keep that
1: spirit alive mm. Well, talking about me personally, I remember I I went home sleeping because I was uh, on the night of those my my like, actually on the morning of mass shootings. uh, But I was just standing on the other side of my down, which basically saved me from 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 bullets. Uh, And, uh, well, I mean, I was so emotionally and psychologically tired. And besides well, physically, because well, we were we were building barricades all night, we were breathing with all those uh, smoke ashes. So I came home just just all black because of the smoke. Uh, So we, we just needed some rest. But I remember then when we came home, we realized the um, the scale of the tragedies, because I thought the like dead bodies basically we were cleaning the street for ambulances to come over to take the bodies. Uh, we saw them uh, the, while they were being brought from the institutska street. Uh, but you know, we were busy doing something. And then when we came home, and we saw this uh, funerals of those people, and this is when I, I started basically crying because I realized how many people died when well, fighting for this talking about like long term prospects, it was still before the end of the revolution of dignity when people started gathering together thinking about what to do next it was becoming quite clear that yanukovych is going to lose maidan so the only question was was how he is losing the maidan and uh, then there were groups of people coming together uh, one of the, the most uh, famous of them was a so-called reanimation package of reforms so basically a group of civil society activists who were coming together to think about uh, what state policies have to be next and so on and so on and many of them actually became later uh, they joined cabinet of ministers parliament and so on and so on so uh, those were civil society groups who were who got united to elaborate new policies elaborate new uh, strategies for 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 the country and uh, on the other on the other side we did not have time to relax because basically Putins started war in Crimea, in Donbass, well, well, almost on the same day uh, Yanukovych fled uh, Maidan. So uh, Ukrainians got united, many of of them as volunteers went to fight because, well, Yanukovych basically destroyed the Ukrainian army. We did not have strong enough Ukrainian army to defend Ukraine. That's why we lost Crimea and Donbass so easily, but there were still uh, thousands of uh, Ukrainian men volunteering to go to fight and we, actually they played a role that uh, Russia did not go any farther back in 2014
0: because actually in 2014 uh, I mean Kharkiv for maybe 24 hours almost I mean was sort of in Russian hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russians tried to take Odessa well, I think we forget this now, but this is why when I was here in Ukraine you know, throughout the pandemic and then in, uh, in the weeks leading up to the full-scale invasion, I I didn't, I knew for, with complete confidence that there's no way Ukraine was going to fall in three days because I'd seen <coughs> what it had, I'd heard the history, mm-hmm. met people who'd been there in Kharkiv, 30 miles from Russia uh, in 2014, uh, when the mayor almost sort of gave, you know, it was almost bribed by Russia and then changed his mind, and but how the regular citizens defended their city. Uh, and this was in, this was as a result of the Maidan revolution. It was like, with Euromaidan, the, with, with, the Euro Maidan, with, with the Revolution of Dignity, Putin and maybe many others, it seems lost their control to plunder from Ukraine. Do you think, had there been no Maidan in 2014, would there be any kind of war right now
1: as we are seeing? I mean, if Maidan lost back in 2014 or if there were no Maidan, uh, Yanukovych would simply give up uh, Ukraine to Russia and we would have been fully controlled by Russia. Uh, Ukraine would be another Belarus today. And just imagine the consequences in this case for Europe, for example. Imagine that uh, it was not only Belarus that, uh, full, that is fully controlled by Russia, but Ukraine with its, well, turns out quite strong army. And imagine uh, uh, Russia, Russia, in addition to Russian army, has Belarusian army, Ukrainian army, and and uh, It would be able to to invade NATO anytime in this case. So this, uh, basically, I would say Maidan has saved not only Ukraine but Maidan has saved Europe as well.
0: Wow, because we don't think about yeah, what would things be like had had that had that movement not happened, and had those students had uh, the courage to, to to face the bullets of the. Uh, one thing that's amazing to me, you had the secret police, the Berkut, uh, mm-hmm. and because of Maidan, the secret police no longer exist. And I think when I when I, I tell this to Americans, because you know, you, you know, we, we the ones the Americans who talk about freedom, the sound of freedom, and everything so much. Uh, you see that you know there's a lot of frustration in America now with you know with with Washington and with you know prosecutors run amok and all kinds of things like that. Well, but in Ukraine, there was a. Very brutal, very powerful secret police, and because of your revolution, uh, we, the, the, they're gone. You know, they they were disbanded. And in fact, I, I think you were one of the first people that told me this. But in the first few weeks after the Maidan Revolution, there was very little structure. I mean, so including in the military, but there was very little structure in Ukraine. And is it true that there were no police for
1: several weeks? What, what was that situation? Uh, well, f- physically, yes. In some places, police, I would say, was was just. Um disoriented. So formally, they were present in some places, they just fled. And, uh, well, actually, uh, going back to Maidan, well, we have a joke that Maidan was the first successful Ukrainian state. Because when people were coming to the central square, well, we had everything that state needs. Basically, we had a kind of border control. There were people standing on the entrances to Maidan just to, you know, to control that we do not have uh, like, alcoholics, drug addicts, nobody is bringing any weapon, you know, there was a kind of border control, we would say. Uh, If somebody got hurt, immediately there was uh, sufficient assistance, so we had good, good healthcare system on Maidan. Uh, it was extremely clean, so everyone was cleaning. So our utility, so-called utility services on Maidan were working perfectly. So we had this joke about uh, Maidan being a f- a first successful Ukrainian state. <laughs> uh, and this actually, hel- this actually is example of uh, strong abilities of self-organization of Ukrainians. You know, just when we got together, we have divided uh, activities, what we have to do. Those people are taking care of. Of the well, border of maidan these are taking care of healthcare. this is a cleaning streets and so on and so on and the same happened after maidan when uh, well our uh, authorities were disorganized in many cases disappeared including police quite often those those were people because, well, obviously, there were some, um, let's say, criminal people who were trying to use the situation. They were basically entering uh, police headquarters to, to 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 set on fire all the documents which they were afraid of. And that's why many people who were basically uh, standing on Maidan, they took care of those administrative premises, police premises to take control until like normal police, until normal authorities returned to power. So this is what happening, what was happening, actually.
0: I mean, when we look at, say, protest movements in, in France and in the United States and i think they tend to get very chaotic there's a lot of things burnt down uh and it can be quite dangerous what where where does this self? i've seen this self-organizing ability in the wartime especially those first weeks of the full-scale invasion is this some is this embedded in ukrainian dna is it because you had to find ways to survive through centuries of totalitarianism what where does this self-organizing ability or skill come from
1: how was it developed? Good question. I think it comes back from 13th century. When we 13th had, century. When we had first invasion in Kiev and Rus by uh, Mon- Mongolian Tatars from the East. And surprise, surprise, until today we have more invasions from the East. <laughs> uh, so Ukrainians had to fight for their freedom for centuries uh, with different armies, enemies from uh, from different, uh, well, from West, from South, from, from East. But of course, uh, well, the, the, the from East we have until today. Um, I think this is this legacy is connected to this uh, Mongolian Tatar horse that existed in the 13th century, that is, I see, a direct line and direct attempts, basically, to exterminate um, our people. Um, you, you should remember about history of Cossacks, Ukrainian freedom-loving people who were just going to steps, you know, to, to, to defend themselves. Uh, we, we remember history's tragedies of uh, Holodomor, the um, genocide organized by the Soviet Union in the 20th centuries, where basically it tried to kill the, the mainly uh, uh, people in villages who were at that time the basis of the ukrainian nation so it's for for centuries we had this uh, story of survival of fighting for freedom and which basically helped us today and uh, well today we realize that uh, if we give up we'll be exterminated it's that simple
0: is it fair to if we give up we'll be exterminated that's the thing to remember and is it is this a fair characterization the you know you you have the term Decapoli the wild fields, and the Kozaks and everyone sort of in these wild fields and in the wild mountains uh, were people who they never wanted to be controlled. There was I mean there wasn't uh, sort of you know you had empires in the east and the west trying to control these lands trying to subdue them, uh, but there were people who wanted to sort of you know and i don't, there's a tradition you could say like the Nestor Makhno the Ukrainian anarchist so called but i don't know if it was quite anarchy it was like it was families and communities mm-hmm. uh, sort of living in freedom together and you know i studied a lot of political and constitutional theory under some of the most brilliant political theorists in the world and not until i came here to ukraine had i ever heard that there was a constitution well before our american constitution 1711 Philip. Orlik, mm-hmm. uh, Kozak Constitution, uh, codified in uh, what is now Zaporizhia, I think, around mm-hmm. Nicopole, uh And so they, were, they weren't just wild pe- people running around in the fields, they actually were creating structures to try to protect that freedom. Uh, but we, we know so little of, of that legacy. Why do you think we don't even, why do you think no one pays attention to that? Was that constitution a big deal? In 1711, it had separation of powers uh, uh, and, and when, when the time when no one else did. And we, you know, I would always say that, oh, the founding fathers of America were the first in modern times to create such a document. Uh, wh- what happened with that constitution? When that experiment of the Cossacks?
1: Uh, I, I would just look at, uh, on this picture more, much broader. Why why the West doesn't know about this constitution and other attempts of Ukrainians to establish democracy? It's very simple because you have never had Ukrainian studies. Because everything about Ukraine w- w- was studied at the departments of Russian studies, of course. And uh, Russia has played just huge role. Just try to you know to get rid of all mentions of Ukraine. Just trying well, basically just like they stole. Our the name of our country, Rus. Uh, they, they were trying to steal everything else, and, and including all our inventions, including all our uh, achievements and so on and so on. And Russia has put enormous efforts in uh, their information or disinformation policies to, uh, well, propagate, basically, establishment to support those so-called Russian studies within which, uh, well, everything Ukrainian or any other um, countries within the Russian empire was simply ignored. So th- I think this is the main major reason why the West doesn't know much about Ukraine constitution of Philip Orlik and many other humans in, in, of Ukraine.
0: Well, I, I can, I mean, there are other, so I, as an Irish-American with, you know, deep connections to my family homeland in the west coast of Ireland, where they fought for freedom for centuries, and whenever I go back uh, to, to those lands, you know, I, I can see the monuments, I recall the history where for 300 years uh, the British, you know, forbade us from speaking our language, practicing our religion and our culture, uh, they tried to erase it all. Uh, and, you know, in Ireland everyone speaks English, uh, you know, people speak Irish maybe, you know, academically or, you know, very mm-hmm. minimally, on culpo two words of Irish maybe. And, uh, but here in Ukraine it's amazing what you've pulled off, I mean, you've kept, mm-hmm. despite all odds, Uh, kept the language alive. And of course, now it's been reawakened. Russia has actually reawakened, uh, especially in Russian-speaking cities like Odessa and Kharkiv. uh, Because of the regular attacks from Moscow, uh, people are more fiercely speaking Ukrainian. Uh, And so I think Ukrainian identity probably now is stronger uh, than it's ever been. And, And that's what... If we look we got to talk about the Rus people, too, and some of that history. But if you, if you look at the history of what's happening now in Ukraine, I think without, without Ukrainians' ability to share your stories about what's happening, without Telegram and social media to show the atrocities, uh, I think it, 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 there certainly would not be the type of support we see now for Ukraine. And it makes me realize that how easy genocides have been throughout human history because mm-hmm. you could just lie if you, if you were in power you could you could lie about what was happening you could cover it up and erase it and then if you kill all the people and you kill their language then there's no way to ever know what happened and it seems like that was that was the method for centuries uh, but now and you know I think even as we look at the the leaders in the West everyone was so quiet the first few days of the big invasion and I thought you know we we. <laughs> In America, you know, people think that the White House and all that was very supportive of Ukraine, but I think a lot of people were just kind of hoping the problem would go away. Uh, you know, Russia would roll over Ukraine and we wouldn't have to deal with this. And and it's this Ukrainian um, this this resistance of saying because if if you lose, we will be exterminated. Uh, and 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 if that's your mentality, then you'll do everything you can uh, to fight. Uh, is the uh, we talk about the Rus the Rus people because if I if I look at the story of, of Russia, uh, and in some ways like I don't I don't like to go too deep into the history on this because the main history is what Russia is doing today and it's evil and it's bad. Uh, if we go back to history, I, I like to go back to Medan, uh, and I want to do that before we finish uh, a little bit more. But it's interesting to look at. So the Rus people came from what is now Stockholm, Sweden, right? The Sweden area. Rus means the rowers. Uh, and in fact, in the Finnish language, they call Sweden Rotsi. So they preserved uh, the name Rus. Uh, uh, and that was the homeland of the Rus people. They sailed down to what is now Kiev. So as you walk this city on the sewers, you have this, the Vikings, mm-hmm. uh, three brothers and a sister. Mm-hmm. Kiev was one of the brothers, right? Yeah. From which you get K- Kiev. Mm-hmm. And uh, so these are the Rus people. They came down, created uh, this great civilization in Kiev. And then there was sort of a jealous brother or prince that fled and went to Moscow, uh, it's kind of Shakespearean and, <laughs> uh, and then he made an alliance with the Mongols and Moscow was not even created till 200 years after Saint Sophia was built here the great Gold Dome Cathedral in Kyiv and ever since then it, it seems like it has been a story of
1: Moscow trying to control Kyiv, is that a fair characterization this was basically the essence of moscow since it's appeared moscow was basically empire uh, expansion was its only policy uh, going eastwards going westwards organizing wars and so on and so on i mean uh, okay this was like a p- problem for many western countries which, which were empires but looks like they have um, refused from it a long time ago when they have switched to normal normal civilized life and i think they are paying you know just uh, enough for, for for their past mistakes instead um, Uh, the Russian Empire has uh, refused to recognize its past mistakes. On the contrary, it still continues its imperialistic policies now towards uh, Ukraine. And this is the same expansion, the same genocidal wars uh, which is happening today, which Russia has conducted for centuries against Ukraine and many other nations, not only actually which are uh, beyond Russia now, but uh, those those nations which are within Russia now, because, well, basically there are many nations which have been colonized, uh, which have been uh, to a large extent exterminated and even in this world that you know that in percentage they uh, russia is sending much more representatives of indigenous people from from this uh, territory than ethnic russians so this is yet another way for russia to get rid of its indigenous people so that the uh, russia can control uh, much easier those those, um, those regions so Uh, Yes, I agree with you. This is the nature, the essence of the Moscow empire to expand, to uh, get control over more and more territories. And uh, I think if after this war, Russia remains within its current territories, within its current borders, sooner or later, like whatever happens in Russia, sooner or later, we will see yet another attempt to organize aggression against its neighbors.
0: Which uh, brings up the uh, the not very small project that you are working on, uh, the essentially the terrace. Tarasbik, uh, you you you, because you were saying maybe more than a year ago we were talking about this that you were working on the project of the breakup of the Russian Federation.
1: We call it decolonization and restructuring of the Russian Federation.
0: De-colon- decolonization and restructuring of the Russian Federation, aka the breakup. But yeah, that's exactly that's exactly the idea. When when, when I first heard it, it sounded impossible to me. Uh, you were traveling around, meeting with people around Europe, uh, and in uh, and the US. Uh, to work on this. And, and you acknowledge that it was extremely difficult and it would take a long, a lot of time. Uh, you work with some dissidents within Russia very quietly. Uh, and I think a lot of people, well, when I would mention this to people, they would laugh at it I'd say, oh, that's ridiculous, especially people in Washington. Uh, I think there's, uh, as Henry Kissinger wrote in The Spectator in December 2022, the world needs Russia in the balance of the global mm-hmm. equilibrium, sort of this unimaginative and perhaps fearful uh, worldview. view and you, uh but you you you've been plotting away at this uh, this project uh, making alliances, and then when there was that and i I can only call it a circus, we don't really know what was going on uh, with the Progosian Wagner rebellion in Moscow and by the way, we're talking just a few hours after it seems that Progrosion went down in a plane crash in Russia uh, by the time this airs I'm sure the story you'll know, be many more details I don't trust anything that comes out of of Russia, but when Whatever happened with that Wagner Rebellion, even if it was some kind of Kremlin orchestration, it showed profound weakness within Russia.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, I, and no one has, uh, since that time, whenever I've mentioned your project of the decolonization and restructuring of the Russian Federation, no one has laughed. I think people still might be afraid of that idea, but people mm-hmm. see the possibility. What, what What is the current status of this, this mission and why, why is it necessary, again, to, you know, is this necessary for Ukrainian victory, for victory of
1: freedom? to break up Russia not only for Ukrainian victory so uh, yes I have joined this project back in uh, May 2022 uh, when I realized that there are some people uh, mainly Russian citizens who because of their position had to flee their country and most of them live in Europe now and they represent both indigenous people as well as just simply ri- ethnic Russians who, who are from different r- regions of Russia and they talk openly about independence of their regions because they do not want to be part of this uh, evil empire they want to have um, opportunities to develop thems- themselves within independent states. And, uh, yeah, this is a group of people uh, called uh, Free Nations of Post-Russia Forum. Uh, so, we have had already seven seven uh, forums all over um, Europe. Uh, the fifth one was actually in the European Parliament, so on discussing it on hu- quite high level. Um, then we had in the United States, and just recently in Japan, Tokyo. Uh, and actually, the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs has uh, reacted to this, the latest forum, because it was held in the premises of the parliament of japan and uh, the ministry of foreign affairs of russia had to react formally you know, with, with strong protest uh, against japan which is which is actually great and so the idea behind this forum is to demonstrate that there are russian citizens who openly talk about sovereignty ab- of their regions it's not ukrainians it's not americans who are talking about collapse of russia but real russian citizens who are talking about uh, they want to decolonize they want to, to be independent from from moscow uh, then another important point is uh, that this should be a win-win scenario because yes like many many of us want to just would like to russia to disappear after everything russia has done to ukraine but well we cannot just make 140 million people disappear it's not realistic and we will have to do something with them so sooner or later and uh, the only in my opinion the only uh, way to secure a good solution is to find win-win situation and this actually decolonization disintegration of the Russian Empire is the best uh, way to find the solution because um, first it will be beneficial for Ukraine for obvious reasons Uh, second it will be beneficial for the West because uh, Russia will cease its existence as um, global threat global security threat and what what is important third it's it's it will be beneficial for people living now on the Russian territories, because instead of paying you know, huge taxes, huge money f- to sustain corrupt Putin's regime, instead of supporting uh, his imperialistic wars, they will be ha- able to preserve all those money within their independent states for their own development, and including by engaging with direct trade with the West. Of course, it will not happen overnight, but uh, this is something that is possible in long- long-term uh, prospect. And so, finally, we are trying with these forums to... Uh, to convince West not to repeat mistakes of the past, when uh, we remember that uh, well, including American leaders were coming in 1990 and saying, well, trying to, to uh, they were calling it uh, Ukrainians not to go into suicidal nationalism. That was uh, George H. W. Bush, with whom I had dinner a few times. Mm-hmm. I wish
0: I had asked these questions. He gave his uh, famous speech in 1991, and it's appropriate we talk about this today, Ukrainian Independence Day, because he was. Uh, He was saying, do not be independent. Nationalism is suicidal. In a speech, you know who wrote that speech? No Condoleezza Rice Oh really (laughs) Yeah Wow Uh, Former
1: uh, um, Mm -hmm. uh, Top security advisor to Bush So I mean I I understand fears Of the West Of uh, chaotic Russian collapse Because yes In this case We can see uh, Internal wars in Russia Which can have You know Much global consequences We can see like Nuclear weapons Flying all over um, The world Which is a very unlikely scenario But still possible Uh, We can see like Millions of immigrants Traveling to Europe Yes This could be Potential consequences Of the Russian collapse But that's what we are talking about if you are afraid of the chaotic Russian collapse, get ready for a civilized a disintegration of the Russian Empire, prepare a strategy of the Russian dissolution. I mean, yes, this is something. Uh, so what we try to do is to move those topics from toxic topics, because well, two years ago, nobody would even just listen if you just try to talk to somebody to the West about Russian collapse. Well, it, it, this was basically toxic, then it moved to some marginal talks. So like just everybody ignored you. And we are still trying to move those topics to to mainstream talks. And I think we are partly successful, at least, you know, we are calling the West to consider such scenario and to prepare for such scenario. And I'm quite sure that, uh, well, because it will not be the West who will make Russia collapse. I mean, Russia is a failed state. It will collapse sooner or later. But our message is that the West should be ready for this collapse.
0: When you, uh, when you use those words, Russia is a failed state. You know, I think Russia has slathered Ukraine with this propaganda, you know, that, that mm-hmm. the, the label corrupts no nation that was corrupt corrupt means dying and decaying no nation that was corrupt could have survived everything that ukraine has survived uh especially now these past 18 months uh but russia is the epitome of corruption uh but uh when when i speak with friends and wa- or people in washington and others about this uh they the the only reaction they have is but putin has nukes so mm-hmm. what's your what's your response? How how can you how can you tread into this territory, uh, you know, unafraid of the madman in, in the in the Kremlin, you know, and people call that George W. Bush, H. W. Bush speech, the chicken Kiev speech, because they say he was being a chicken <laughs> and afraid Ukrainians are not chickens. But how can you tell the world, uh, you know, what is your response? And people say, well, we can't even try to
1: work for the dissolution. Of russia because putin will go nuclear can we feel safe with the person who destroyed kohoka uh, dam uh, it like can we, can we feel safe that uh, he controls nuclear weapon? I mean, what can be worse? I mean, we are now already in the worst possible situation. Uh, on the other hand, if we have uh, some potential for new independent states, as actually it's time for Western representatives to talk to potential leaders of the Western states. <laughs> like, listen guys, you give up your nuclear weapons, we just help you to develop. Well, basically what happened in Ukraine? Uh, yes, Budapest guarantees did not work properly as we ex- expected them, but still the West is standing on our sta- side strongly and helping us to defend. The same scenario can be used for many other countries, of uh, which are now controlled by, which are now part of the Russian Federation, uh, just, you know, p- making a deal with them that they give up nukes, they give up their authoritarian policies, instead the the, hel- the West helps them to become democratic and in- even engages them in economic and trade relations. This could be part of the solution to nuclear weapons problem.
0: Do you need bottom-up Medan movements in those countries? I mean, are, you know, do, do you see the possibility? of uh, or are people so broken after s- centuries of living under czars and putins and stalins that uh, they're, they're, you know did, did you see any kind of Ukrainian spirit in any of these far-flung Russian
1: republics? No, you cannot c- compare Ukrainian spirit to, to any place in Russia. Yeah. But still, I mean, uh, within this forum, we are meeting people, Russian citizens, including uh, actually quite recently many young generation, uh, representatives of young generation who are t- like trying to create this these movements. Uh, they were not representatives of some elites back there. I mean, like political so-called elites. They are just representatives of different movements, different, actually, from any Environmental movements to to some uh, diaspora movements who are trying to unite uh, people around them. So I think there are some first uh, steps of these um, bottom-up appro- approach movements, and which will sooner or later lead to some kind of Maidan on those territories.
0: And uh, trust one thing I like about your story is that you know you're not only working at the very theoretical, long-term, high-level uh, approach, but also for especially since uh, the Maidan. In 2014 you've been working at a very practical micro level and so for example we went on the road trip with uh, several friends to Odessa and Mikolaev and you introduced me to the mayor of Mikolaev with whom you've worked I remember we were standing You know, Mikolaev is a place that back then because it was right before the liberation of her song, mm-hmm. and so there was uh, so there goes to two
1: days I think before the liberation it was
0: two days we, yes. there, we could hear the sounds of the the liberation mm-hmm. yes, yes, yes. in effect mm-hmm. and Mikolaev is a place that back then could be shelled I- at any moment uh, and we're standing there in the parking lot and then this, this this car, maybe a Honda or something just comes drifting into the parking lot, uh, literally drifting. And I said, oh, well, you know, we're waiting to meet the mayor. I said, well, what is that guy doing? And you said, oh, that, that's the mayor of the city, uh, uh, Alexei Sienkiewicz. <laughs> and uh, as we were having that conversation, you know, you had worked with him. He was, came from the generation of Maidan. And I saw in those meetings in Mikolaev just how deep the Russian corruption had been, you know, in the, in the level of the local government. And, you know, when I look at the frustration in America with government, it extends to every level. People just feel that they don't have agency, whether it's, you know, small bureaucratic things they have to deal with or, uh, you know, not able, you know, just can't find an opportunity in life. This, this is such a, a heavy a heaviness in America now. Uh, here, Ukrainians have agency, but you have to fight for it. And even at that local level, as I saw in, in Mikolaev, I mean, like the mayor was, um, he was elected by the people and then he, they kicked him out. Of office, right? Wasn't he? Was he put in jail? Just can you briefly say what? Because and that micro story it shows mm-hmm. uh, the, what it takes to fight the corruption. What it took mm-hmm. before the big invasion, and then when he got back into, to in, uh, that means it's all clear in Kharkiv, by the way. Um, he when he got back into uh, he, he got he came back into office right before the full-scale invasion, and he kept the Russians out of the city, uh, whereas not far away in the city for Solon. You had pro-Russian politicians, and that city fell very quickly. So what can you just describe a little bit about what you were doing in Mykolaiv? Uh, yes, Muklai
1: is actually a great great example of what is what is happening in Ukraine. Uh, Muklai used to be one of the most pro Russian, pro Soviet cities. So we have we have conducted many opinion polls there, and it was like really pro Russian, pro Soviet, and always controlled by some criminal pro Russian mayor. Uh, after the Revolution of Dignity, uh, in quite a surprise elections, uh, local uh, leader of uh, head of I uh, like IT company, young pro European guy from pro Europeanist party, uh, named Oleksandr Sienkiewicz, won the election. And it was, like, uh, quite shocking. But uh, since he did not have majority in the city council, he had to establish coalition with, like, the bad guys, like, pro-Russian guys. Um, so, of course, uh, this is, like, one of the key rules in politics. Never go for compromises with evil. Uh, well, since he was not an experienced politician, he had to go to those compromises. And ultimately, basically, his partners removed him, opened some criminal, like, like those of just f- fake cases, and accusing him in corruption and they removed him from office. And surprisingly, there were just, uh, even the mayor said he was surprised by how many people went to the street to defend him, uh, like ordinary people who who basically elected him. And uh, so basically, he managed to fight back in the court. He, he won the case and he returned to office and then he was re-elected. Uh, he got uh, much more uh, representatives of his party in the city council. And uh, since that time, he was trying to do something, something positive for the city. And uh, in 2022, well, Russians were basically on the outskirts of the city. And the interesting story that many representatives of security services, police basically fled the city because, well, it was, uh, the chances the city would fall were really high. Uh, However, it was thanks to ordinary people like, um, well, Mayor Sienkiewicz and municipality officials who had nothing to do with military, who got united and they were helping Ukrainian army to defend the city not only mayor's office, governor's office, uh, you, you probably have seen very famous governor Kim, so all of them, just civilian people, they had to take rifles, they had to, well, to risk their lives, to help the army to defend the city, and uh, the city was surrounded for, for quite a while, like semi-surrounded, uh, however, uh, they managed to fight back, but still, uh, the city has paid a really huge price, because Russian artillery was standing for eight months quite close to Mikolayev, and the city was under constant bombardment, and uh, so uh, even uh, before the liberation of the Kherson region so even even when the city was under bombardment we started working with the city already and uh, at that point, Kingdom of Denmark has decided to take under auspices recovery of Mikolaiv. And I remember at one of the first meetings, there was a very good message from the mayor who said at the meeting with the ambassador of Denmark. He said, like, listen, we do not need money. The less money I have coming you know, for in my city, the less seduction from my officials, <laughs> the better for me. We need projects and we need their results. So we started working in this area and we managed to organize many projects on the restoring water supply system, on providing construction materials. Um, he heating system, electricity, and so on, and so on. And uh, this has become a really successful cooperation. Uh, So uh, basically, on the example of Mykolae, we can demonstrate two cases. First, how successful decentralization or reform was. Because since 2014, after decentralization reform had been implemented, the trust towards local governance was growing, like, immensely. And I think this has played a huge role because uh, local local self-governance was becoming when, when the Russians invaded local self-governance in Ukraine were becoming one of those, you know, centers, uniting citizens to defend their communities, to defend their cities. And so this, this, I see this as a direct result of the decentralization reform, because uh, the mayors, if they wanted to be re-elected, instead of stealing money, they had to invest in their city, so that citizens see that cities uh, is improving, and they are re-elected. That's, that's how it works in democracy. And uh, second case, yes, it's about local patriotism, you know, of, uh, people were ordinary people, civilians, were becoming uh, so patriotic of their uh, cities that they were just joining uh, different army formation and uh, defending their cities. And finally, third, it's about uh, recovery process. We need to secure as transparent, as integral uh, recovery process as possible. And uh, Mikulayev example is actually one of those examples which has already been successful.
0: And Mikolaiev, I mean is a it's an important city because' it's, it's a shipbuilding capital. Uh, I think that's why it used, Copen- used to be It used to be may- maybe there's potential there for, for, for yes. recovery. Mm-hmm. But if you think about this decentralization, uh, this is I think what what Moscow and, and, and others were, were opposing because you can't control things as much. Uh, you can't plunder as much when it's in the hands of the local people. Mm-hmm. and it's that very decentralization that actually also made it uh, not only more difficult to plunder, but impossible to take the city, right? Because so you had all these years of fighting corruption, which had actually prepared everyone Mm -hmm. to actually have to physically, literally fight, uh, to protect the city. Uh, and i think that's you know that that's that's the story i think of of, of post-maidan ukraine and and of this full-scale invasion by and russia
1: i would say that quite symbolically the very famous russian military ship moscow was built actually in Mikolaev. and quite symbolically that today well basically mikhailiv citizens has have shown the russians the way to go well just following the famous russian military ship
0: can we can, we, can you say in, in ukrainian the the, <laughs> the 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 phrase of uh. Uh, well, it actually comes from Snake Island, but uh, the Russian yeah. ship, uh, you know. Go. Uh, I don't think it's proper. Yeah. <laughs> to say uh, uh, we, we, it we will we, be cut anyway.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Thank you. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's Independence <laughs> Day. I think it's okay. Yeah. And you see that as I'm driving around Ukraine. I love to see that on yeah. people's cars. Mm-hmm. We'll put in the description what it means in English. Um, but, uh, well, Taras, great. And the last question I want to ask is uh, what. Uh, in these eighteen months of full scale invasion, what was what was the most difficult moment or day or moment as you, however you want to define it, but the most difficult moment for you?
1: Um. I, th- I would say that uh, there was, even though, you know, I, it was clear for me, the war is coming. Uh, 10 days before the war, I just took my family out to Western Ukraine. And then after first missiles landed in, in Western Ukraine, I just sent them to Poland. And then, you know, this uh, first several weeks, uh, a- actually even several days in Kyiv, when, when Russians were approaching, uh, I, I, I have to admit I had this fear, uh, because like nobody knows well, what Russians would do, where they would stop. But on the other hand, I could not have imagined what Russians would do here. I mean, I live in Kyiv for quite a while and I have seen those uh, freedom-loving citizens of Kyiv. Even if Russians had managed to occupy the city, Kyiv citizens would have killed them with with bare hands. I mean, they would do everything to protect freedom, to protect their uh, dignity. And, you know, there were like first, I would say first, three days, when it still was not clear what was, what was happening to the city. And um, I went, but then I went to local, uh, like, military recruitment office, so-called VNKOMAD, uh, to territorial defense, and I was shocked to see, like, hundreds of men lining up to join the army to defend the city. I was so positively shocked. Actually, the, the, the military recruitment office actually had the privilege to choose. So they said, like, okay, do, do you have some military experience? Do you not have experience of shooting? I was like, no, I don't. So, like, get out of here, just do some volunteering. So there were so many people to, to, uh, trying to join the army, to, to join the territorial defense that the, the, the military defense recruitment office had this privilege. And so this actually, these first days uh, they were scary because well, basically we were getting ready for the guerrilla war in the, in the in the city building trenches, you know, removing all signs from the streets to disorient Russians and so on and so on uh, but after like first several days I have realized like, no, this city is not giving up and Russia simply will not take them and we started our our, like day-to-day activities military trainings to get ready for well possible invasion but mostly helping our guys on the um, on the borders of kiev to, to to you know to defend the city and this is when i realized well no we are not giving up the city we are not giving up this country
0: Truss, my friend, thank you. Uh, it's always great to speak with you. Perhaps who knows where our next conversation will be? Uh, you know, either in Lviv or you know, r- running into you somewhere in, in the east in Donbass. Uh, Mikhail
1: Nikolayev, once again.
0: And am That would be great, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I I hope we can keep checking in and and sharing these stories too with the public, especially with the Americans. To Americans, to help them believe that a it's possible to have agency. Uh, and, and we can, you, you can, you know, reform your government and you can make your democracy something that works for the people, uh, which Ukrainians continue to do cheerfully, even despite the constant threat of, uh, of missiles uh, from Russia. Uh, so, Taras uh Wooden Horse Strategies, uh, and your NGO.
1: Ag- Agency for Recovery and Development.
0: Agency for Re- Recovery and Development. And uh, this is Joe Lindsley, Land of the Free podcast talking to you from here uh the studios of uh, Ukrainska Pravda Ukrainian Truth uh in Kyiv the capital of Ukraine on Ukrainian Independence Day uh how do we say in in, in Ukrainian happy independence day
1: Z Dnem nezalezhnosti
0: Z za svyatym ozayam uh Duzhdyakoyu Jolensky and Ukrainska Pravda with Traspik Duzhdyakoyu
1: thank you